0: What's in a name? The Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. You're listening to Policy, Guns, and Money, the ASPE podcast. In this special podcast series, ASPI's Dr David Angle and Dr Gatra Priandita speak to special guests about the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership and the five pillars supporting it. In this episode. David and Gatra are joined by Lena Alexandra and John McCarthy for a conversation focused on the diplomatic aspects of the partnership.
1: Welcome, everyone, to this the third episode of our podcast series on the Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. Today we're focusing on the foreign policy and diplomatic elements of the CSP, and to that end, we're joined by two extremely well-qualified guests. Lina Alexandra is the head of the Department of International Relations at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Jakarta. Lina is a leading authority on the Indonesian foreign policy as well as international policy issues such as peacekeeping and peace building, human rights, human security, and conflict resolution. Her studies in these subjects gained her both a doctorate and a master's degree, both from the University of Queensland. Among other things, she holds the position of coordinator of the Myanmar Initiative Program at CSIS and has written extensively on the Myanmar question, Responsibility to Protect concept, or R2P, and other such topics. John McCarthy is one of Australia's most eminent former diplomats and commentators on international affairs, especially on Australia's relations with Asia. Among his numerous ambassadorial appointments, including the United States, Japan, and India, to name a few, John served as Australia's ambassador to Indonesia from 1997 to 2001. Those years saw the end of Suhara's New Order, the renaissance of Indonesian democracy, and East Timor's independence. And as we saw in our first episode, they're among the most consequential in the history of Australia-Indonesia relations. So welcome to you both, and thanks again for participating in this episode. Thank you very much, David.
0: Uh, Thank you, David.
2: To kick it off, I'd like to sort of Talk about the issue of trust in the relationship. Now, the CSP talks about Indonesia and Australia being strong partners in a changing world. It also retains the Lombok Treaty Clause stressing that neither country will in any manner support or participate in activities that would constitute a threat to the stability, sovereignty, or territorial integrity of the other, which seems to reflect longstanding Indonesian anxieties about separatism and Australia's perceived behavior in this respect. So, what does the CSP say about how each country sees the other in this profoundly changing region? And to what extent have developments like the Quad and AUKUS reflected or affected such perceptions? Uh, perhaps we can have you first, Malina.
0: Well, uh, thank you, Gatra. As you particularly mentioned, the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership actually reflects and has been built on the basis of Lombok Treaty back in 2006. And I think it is very clear for all of us that the CSP confirms about the necessity for both countries to intensify their their bilateral cooperation in a much more comprehensive way, not only in security or defence area. And when we look at the document itself about the strategic partnership, the comprehensive strategic partnership, it does say a lot about the visions itself what both countries are hoping to see in the future in terms of both australia and indonesia would become strong partners and how international rules and norms can be observed from the name itself when we say it's comprehensive it's it's being upgraded from strategic into comprehensive strategic partnership uh we can clearly see also cooperation's in many areas in economic area building connectivity, particularly on people to people connection, security cooperation, maritime cooperation, and particularly, uh, which is quite recent, is how to gearing toward a stable and prosperous Indo-Pacific region. And specifically on the last point on Indo-Pacific, I think the CSV uh, mentions about incorporating habits of dialogue and diplomacy in settling disputes. This is something what I think both countries should really um, pursue or emphasize. Maintaining communication, be transparent to each other, would be very crucial. But again, of course, we, we see the reality. A lot of hurdles need to be cast aside first in order to make two countries become strong partners. We still see, of course, uh, from time to time, hiccups, you know, incidences that lower the trust between the two countries. I think, for example, uh, the issue that Australia, we all know, has a particular interest to keep an eye over Indonesia's human rights record, which often raises sensitivity from the Indonesian side. And the fact that Australia has always been perceived to be uh, closer to the Western interests rather than the the regional interest here in Southeast Asia. The fact that Australia is the US ally that exists, that presents in the region often sees as much more championing Western interests rather than cooperating in, um, you know, fulfilling the interests of of the region. While Indonesia on the hand holds on to the non-alignment standpoint, Uh, Indonesia has been uh, seeking for the region to be a zone of peace, freedom, and neutrality, not becoming a battleground for major powers to flex their muscles and fight while, you know, the smaller countries are stepped in between. So you mentioned about court and AUKUS. I mean, like we cannot deny that this definitely affects the perception. The fact that there is there has been very little, if not no communication at all about the intention, you know, uh, of these initiatives is really, you know, uh, triggering some response from from the region. And the fact that these initiatives come amidst the fierce superpowers tension and Western containment against China, uh, as well as that, that kind of, um, you know, gesture or message uh, that uh, somehow I think quite accusing the region has been, that the region has been too close to China is something, you know, that needs to be dealt with. Again, back to my message, that communication, communication, communication is something very important to make the two countries can become, uh, you know, the strong partners.
2: Uh, John, is there a trust problem in the relationship?
3: Oh, look, I think there always has been an element of that. Ever since I've been working on Indonesia, and of course that was particularly at the, the time that Suharto left the scene, Indonesia over that period. Yeah, there is a trust problem, and uh, you can see that going back to Timor, particularly, where there was distrust by a lot in Australia, including members of the government, about the activities of the Indonesian military in Timor. And there was distrust from the Indonesians about uh, Australia's intentions in Timor. Uh, So, you know, that. That goes without saying. There's also uh, there's some major cultural differences which, uh, from time to time, cause distrust. Uh, and it's often you know because we don't take sufficient account in Australia of Indonesian thinking, and possibly uh, the other way around as well. An example of this, I think, which was you know our most recent serious hiccup in the relationship, I think, was the decision by the former government to. Uh, recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel we, it was just before we were about to finalize a trade agreement with Indonesia and that decision was made uh, by the former government without much consultation at all within the system here, let alone with countries like Indonesia and Malaysia I mean you have that you that sort of thing happening you have a problem. I also understand the concern on AUKUS when there were consultations. Between uh, Australia and Indonesia at a very high level, at ministerial level, shortly before the AUKUS decision was announced. Uh, I can understand Indonesian concerns about that. By the way, that whole issue was, was very, very closely held uh, because you had to wait till all three countries were ready to announce it. And so the ministers in question were put in a difficult position, but I totally understand Indonesian concerns about that. And, uh, I think, uh, one way or another, AUKUS is here to stave for this, certainly the, the short and medium term. Whether it will last forever, I don't know. But I think it's very important that any major strategic decisions of that sort be brought to the attention of uh, countries like Indonesia before they're announced, mean that is crucial. I don't think you know these policies are going to be stopped. We understand there are aspects of AUKUS which Indonesia doesn't like, or some some parts of the Indonesian system uh, does not like. Uh, but I think uh, it, it is very important that you are kept informed of what we are doing, and I think uh, provided we handle ourselves in that way, uh, I think trust will gradually build it will build gradually. Equally, there are you know, areas of Indonesian activity quite clearly where we need to be sure of, of, of what's happening. And uh, I'm sure would, you know, Indonesia will understand the need to inform us ahead of the time on, on some of these questions. So um, I understand the trust issue. I understand the concerns. But I would also argue that we're in a better place on these issues than we were, certainly in the time when I was in Indonesia and for a while after. There were constantly questions, a lot of them to do with Timor, but not all to do with Timor, which came up, which caused real ructions between Australia and Indonesia. And thereafter, every three or four years, something occurred. There was the Chantham Sukumaran case, which caused ructions in, in the relationship. I think probably it's a more even relationship now than it was in the past. I think it's moving in the right direction. And part of that is building thoroughly and in a very deliberate way on the main elements in the relationship, and that is obviously trade investment, uh, security, anti-terrorism, defence, and so on. I I will add something uh, as a practitioner. Of course, one is aware of comprehensive strategic partnerships and a lot of these uh, arrangements which we have made over the years. And, of course, we've also, as you have, entered into these sorts of partnerships with other countries. These partnerships are big announceables when a prime minister or a president visits another country. And uh, they are very useful as a bureaucratic tool To make sure that people continue working on the issues, but uh, my own perspective, from my own perspective, is they're rather overdone. I mean, you you get on with it, you get the thing signed, and then nobody talks about it for another year. Uh, But the aspects, the what is actually happening under the agreements, continues, and uh, so I I don't make quite such a fuss about them as uh, some others in the business.
0: Well, if I can add to, to that as well, I think I totally agree with John. There were, there were times, uh, especially during the previous administration, you know, under Yudhoyono, uh, where Indonesia made a lot of, you know, upgraded a lot of strategic partnership into comprehensive strategic partnerships. Right. And I totally agree with John. They just signed, you know, and happy about it. But then after that, another year, just forget about it. So I think. What is really meaningful is to work on it. I mean, like to work on the commitments. That's always the problem, you know. We already have the CSPs with so many countries. But in terms of the the real actions, you know, the real implementation, there are always problems with that, you know. When, you know, another issue hit our countries, you know, just coming, especially with the pandemic, a lot of things forget. Most countries, they just close down and then deal with their own problems rather than getting back to what they already signed and then seeking for possible cooperation to to help each other, basically.
1: Another dimension to this issue, I think, is is how each country sees itself now and into the future. Jokowi has already labelled Indonesia a big country, and that's a status he doesn't accord Australia, and that Australia doesn't apply to itself. To the extent Indonesia realizes its potential as a country with 10 times Australia's population with everything that comes with that and behaves accordingly what implications does this have for our partnership and how we should engage each other lena
0: well i think to some extent that kind of statement of course is for nationalistic purpose you know for the domestic state to hear where we are a big country well in fact i think indonesia is indeed big. i mean like it's one of the largest archipelagic states uh, and population-wise as well. Uh, Now we have, you know, more than 276 million people and the working people, the working force is like 144 million. And we cannot deny that despite a lot of potentials that we have as quote-unquote a big country, we do have problems. We have long borders, you know, and many of them still very much porous. you know. Uh, we are still um, facing problems f- from illegal trafficking of goods and people, you know. And also all sorts of, of other um, illegal um, uh, transnational criminal activities. And internally, uh, we are also continuously facing uh, problems like the rising of intolerance, you know, um, insurgent movement, terrorism. It's still, uh, they are still there. Um, so with that, I think, uh, with all the problems that we have and we certainly uh, uh, understand that Indonesia definitely cannot deal with those problems alone, uh, especially with the rise of um, global challenges. The pandemic has really given us very good lesson that no country is actually able to deal with the, with the problem alone. So uh, the message is very loud and clear with Australia, I think with also other countries, that Indonesia has always been seeking to collaborate with other countries to deal with with its its problems. But what I must say is really, being big, this is a a kind of self-criticism, you know, being big doesn't mean anything, to be honest, except that if you can fully tap on your potentials and benefits for yourself, as well as providing uh, public goods for others, the other point is really. Being a big power doesn't come by itself. It must come with hard work, and uh, we must learn how to be a responsible power if we want to become a big power. That is the most important thing. In terms of the bilateral relations with Australia, I think we are heading to the same direction. For the past decade, I think we've been talking about middle powers, and Indonesia and Australia, to some extent, is within this particular category. And when we are talking about middle powers, we don't really necessarily say or uh, uh, see that it is actually de- determined by the size itself, but rather by intellectual power to be able to navigate its own way amidst the superpowers or the major powers rivalries and ability to contribute to regional and global security and prosperity. And the other point really, which is the, the, the key, is how middle powers should be able to be pivotal powers and not a dispensable power. Pivotal means you can be very agile, not only again, not only pursuing your own interests, but rather uh, on how we can also contribute uh, to the public goods for the global prosperity and, and security. So I think in that sense, really, uh, how both countries can work together, because we share a lot of identities to some extent, you know, and share a lot of interests as
3: well. I really don't disagree with your comments at all. Uh, The the fact is Indonesia is getting bigger and you're going to be a much bigger country and in the end you're going to be a wealthier country than Australia. That goes without saying, I think. What's important uh, to Indonesia is it will not only be a big country but it also be a skillful country. And there are areas of Australian economic prowess and uh, technical skill where we can be helpful, as well as certain resources such as lithium, which uh, which the President raised uh, when uh, Prime Minister albanese was was in Jakarta recently. So you know, There is beginning to be, I think, a real interest on the part of Australian uh, business in A, investing in these what I call clever areas. Uh, Monash University's presence in Indonesia is one of those. The interest of business people like uh, Forrest and Cannon Brooks in investing in technological areas, Uh, such as solar energy, which, or the the mechanics of solar energy, is another indication of uh, such an interest on our part. But if you look at the figures, our investment in Indonesia is not good. Indonesia, the latest figures I've seen, uh, is our 27th destination for investment. Now that's important, given our proximity and uh, even though there are in many senses, we, we we do the same things. We export resources. Uh, we could do a lot more together. And I think uh, what is important here is that uh, Prime Minister Albanese and a, another large group of potential investors have all been up to Indonesia in the last six months. Albanese, of course, twice. But there was also a group of Superannuation fund managers, which has visited Indonesia now, in in Australia the superannuation fund business is enormous. Where we have three trillion dollars in superannuation funds, and by 2040 this is going to be something like ten trillion dollars. Yet on a delegation that went up in August, only one of those funds had been up to have a serious look at Indonesia. The Canadians are way ahead of us, the Canadian superannuation funds. And this is an area where we can invest, doesn't have to be all, of course, in what I call the clever areas, but in Indonesian productivity as a whole. And of course, it will benefit us. And that's an area where we have, I think, uh, been deficient as a country, not just in relation to Indonesia, but in particular in relation to Indonesia it is the trade and investment area that really needs from the australian perspective and from indonesia's perspective that needs the hardest work and, uh, and of course trade and investment has a direct impact on the overall relationship between two countries uh, i'd also make just one add one point here the approach of the new australian government to asean and to the countries individually of ASEAN, is uh, much more forthcoming than that of the previous government. I agree, the previous government put uh, uh, the emphasis very much on deterrence on the Quad, or so on. This government has shown a very strong disposition to even out the deterrence aspects of our external policy and the need for engagement with Southeast Asia most of the members of which have a different perspective on how to handle security issues in the region. Well, it's good that you've sort of talked about that societal and
2: economic angle, because uh, the CSP sort of picks up on when it comes to the bilateral relationship, at least implicitly, there is a persistent lack of deep and widespread knowledge in each other. Um, You know, it talks about promoting a contemporary view of Australia and Indonesia in our respective societies through social Arts and cultural collaboration, as well as educational and other people to people ties. How much does this restrain the relationship from being closer and more strategic?
3: Well, I think it restrains our relationships with Asia as a whole, and Indonesia is a key element of that. There are several problems. One, they traditionally, Australians, when they travel, have tended to go. To Europe and the United States, other than just to the resort areas of Southeast Asia. There needs to be much more serious exposure of Australians to what is happening. And the government is trying to help this with what we call uh, the New Colombo Plan. It's trying to push that sort of tendency on the part of young Australians. But c- certainly on our part and I don't want to speak for Indonesia, there is a serious need for more education about the region in Australian schools and universities. I'm not talking just about language here. I'm talking about knowledge of what is happening in the countries around us. And that really has to be taken on as a major national issue because it just doesn't involve the federal government. You have to, in our system, bring our states on because they run the schools. And once we are able to develop that, there will be a certain amount of automaticity in our capacity to uh, to handle the region and uh, to, to deal more effectively with the region. But I think that is one of the most crucial areas. When we talk about Australian foreign policy, this domestic question is really, certainly in the context of the medium and longer term, is, is really crucial.
0: I think all the points that John just mentioned is is really something that we, uh, uh, that I personally would like to, to propose as well. Very concrete, the visa issue. Uh, like Indonesians, a lot of Indonesians would like, they love Australia so much. Um, I mean, like they are very familiar, especially because their kids normally uh, are educated in Australia. So they really enjoy, you know, going to Australia. But in terms of visa, you know, it's quite difficult to uh, obtain an Australian visa, you know, and a lot of them, even the documents itself is one of the, you know, the most bureaucratic, the most uh, difficult to to fill into. I must say. But anyway, I totally agree. There's still a persistent lack of knowledge of each other. And I totally uh, agree with what John mentioned is about the education itself. We all know that. Of course, it was uh, language primarily in the past, but of course, uh, a lot of centers, you know, um, uh, that are focusing on Southeast Asia and particularly on Indonesia, there are, what I, what I learned is they are diminishing as well in Australia. And this is really sad because I think that these centers, you know, they play very key roles on how to connect people, the experts, you know, the academics, uh, as well as uh, common people, you know, uh, because they create activities, they create initiatives on how to 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 bridge between these two countries, people and people connectivity. Uh, but again, um, I mean like the effort, I must commend Australian government as well, um, because uh, a lot of programs, you know, under Australian aid now, the, the scholarships still there, still very, very generous. I'm one of the very grateful, I'm actually the awardee of the Australian uh, Aid programs for my PhD and my, for my master's before. And so yeah, aid also, also create a lot of, um, a lot of training, capacity uh, building programs for different institutions in Indonesia. And definitely I learned that from my colleagues in Indonesia. Those initiatives are very, very useful, but as John said, from the Australian side, it's also important that uh, th- there's a program to bring them here to Indonesia to experience Indonesia more. Rather than Bali, and this uh, the the reinitiation of the Colombo Plan. This is something very very. I think this this type of program is very very important, definitely to mend some gaps in terms of the uh, lack of knowledge. So I think a lot of things needs to be worked, uh, but definitely it's there. And also I would like to echo what John said, that this current administration. Uh, from Australia with the visit of the Prime Minister Albanese and the fact the Foreign Minister is also from Asia to some extent. Uh, That really gives a kind of a new air, a lot of expectation. I remember we in CSIS, we made a media release about this uh, because of course the media, they asked a lot of questions. What sort of expectations uh, to this new administration in Australia? And the sentiment's really, really positive, I must say. Uh, We we think that this current government, this current administration is much more sincere. They are very keen to learn uh, about the interests of the region.
1: To the CSP's references to multilateralism, cooperation in multilateral fora is something of a theme in the document. We've just gone through another summit season, and one in which Indonesia hosted the G20 and Both the EAS and APEC summits were also held in Southeast Asia. What have these most recent summits told us about Australia and Indonesia as multilateral partners, John? Well, I think, uh, look, there are certain issues
3: where uh, in these multilateral fora or even regional fora where Australia is going to take uh, a more Western rather than Asian approach. an example of that is obviously the Ukraine, the way we deal with that. Um, there are a host of reasons for that, but uh, including public opinion in Australia. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's a fact. But at the same time, I noticed that recently in Jakarta at, uh, at the G20, Albanese went to some lengths to try and help Jokowi out. For example, on the question of walking out when the Russian foreign minister entered the room. And uh, we also said very early on that we would attend the G20 if the Russians attended. That's that's what Albanese said almost as soon as he was elected. Now, all that, I think, shows a disposition to be helpful uh, to Indonesian aspirations in multilateral forum. But we have a different society. We have the American Alliance, uh, which we have to take into account. And so, you know, we're not going to be on all fours all the time. The Japanese, I think, uh, are probably a little bit more skillful in their dealings with ASEAN still than we are. Uh, certainly, I think they're regarded as being much more skillful. But they too take, you know, quite different positions on some of these issues. So, I think again, we're moving in the right direction on the cooperation, and I think this government will be very conscious of the need to cooperate with Indonesia and other Southeast Asians. But uh, there are going to be areas of daylight quite frequently, I suspect.
0: Well, my takeaways about the recent summit is more for the Indonesian side, you know. Now. Well, I think on the Australia, Indonesia um, as multilateral partners to some extent. Uh, as what John mentioned, I think there's still uh, clearly an appetite from both countries to support multilateralism. So, you know, back to the issue of port and Ocus, uh, we know it's still there, but at least it really shows that countries like Australia still very much support multilateralism to overcome common challenges. But my takeaway is really the inputs or recommendations for our own government in particular. The thing is we really need to walk the talk. Because we see a lot of praises for Indonesia to be able to host this G20 summit, a lot of euphoria as well domestically here. But the main points really we discussed earlier, not just to be able to host, but the really important points really how we can take down those commitments to the real actions. In terms of declarations, a lot of things there, but where the countries, the participating countries really walk the talk, really put down their efforts to deliver what they have agreed upon. Because with this G20, for example, we know it's leader summit, but after that, what? There has been no implementing mechanism whatsoever to really bring countries to deliver their commitments. We need to see real impacts, especially because those issues that have been discussed in the G20, those are real issues. Those are the real challenges that we will face uh, in the very near future. And the fact that uh, the subsequent chairmanship is going to be from the developing countries, you know, India, Brazil, and South Africa, that really should be treated as a momentum for the developing countries. To be able, again, back to my point on the pivotal power, how they can actually play their pivotal power to bring in the major powers to to work together with the developing countries to overcome the common global challenges. That's where the real hard work is.
2: Um, so sticking to the theme of multilateral cooperation, um, you know, more than 30 years ago, Australia and Indonesia collaborated closely to lead efforts to resolve the conflict in Cambodia and establish bodies like APEC with a view to melding the interests of nations more closely together. The region today is hardly without its political and strategic challenges. If anything, this, they're more threatening than ever. Um, what are the prospects for Australia and Indonesia playing such a role jointly these days when it comes to issues like Myanmar or questions like the South China Sea and Taiwan?
3: Look, I think uh, in those glory days 30 years ago, there were the strategic situation globally was very, very different. And that permitted, I think, agility and considerable skill on the part of the two countries in particular, particularly LA Alitas and Gareth Evans, obviously, but a lot of people who worked on that issue. Bear in mind, this was a time when uh, China was recovering from Men. It uh, had nothing like the economic or political clout that it has today. The Russians uh, were very much, essentially, in total retreat. That the country was, or their empire, was breaking up. Uh, and so they didn't want to make any real difficulties. The Vietnamese were tired of war. They had their economy to repair. And uh, the situation uh, was such that everybody said, you know, effectively when we tried to put together a project, uh, let's do it. I'm not saying there weren't difficulties, there were considerable difficulties in the negotiation of it, but the international climate was such. And the two leading foreign ministers were very, very skilled. Uh, you don't usually get people like Evans and Alitas. But that, that level of skill, being able to just be in the right place at the right time, who could work together. So all that made made a difference. I'd say uh, those big issues now, I think the climate is, is different. There is so much international tension uh, that it would be difficult for countries like Australia and Indonesia working together to put a project in place of the dimensions of the Cambodia project I also think that when when faced with these problems, both our countries know what to do that would repair them. I mean, we basically would know what to do in in Myanmar. (laughs) But there are sort of so many other problems, including the attitudes of the people in Myanmar, including the attitudes of the Chinese, including the attitudes of some of the other Southeast Asians, that it would be, uh, I think, uh, very very complicated very complicated even for the ties so uh, I don't see uh, us in the position right now to, to to do that sort of job again it might be in ten years time things are different we might be in a different position everything is timing and uh, the timing is simply not right uh, now but we can work together uh, you know uh, productively but I don't think we can be the uh, the problem-solvers, the people who really you are know, the prime movers in changing a situation in that dimension, as we were before.
2: Melina?
0: Well, I totally agree with John. I think sometimes the history cannot repeat, you know, in other different circumstances. And definitely, I think, well, at that time, the heat of the Cold War was still there, and, and I think the situation that we are now facing is a lot different. And especially, I must say, I, again, I agree with, with John. I think the to have really such a fortunate, skillful people at the right time is something that we might not see um, uh, to, to have currently, I mean, like, yeah, at different time, we have different people with different capacities, basically. And from, in my opinion, I think it's pretty much the same. Um, in terms of the Myanmar case, ASEAN, I'm still in the in the position that ASEAN should really spearhead the all the efforts first. Well, after, but then, uh, I mean, like after that, then we can bring in, you know, the non-ASEAN external partners because it's such a complex issue and it's such a delicate issue that we need to handle here. Uh, There's a problem within ASEAN itself. We know ASEAN has been divided, you know, and I must say also the lack of Indonesia's leadership in this respect uh, also um, is a a big factor there. So I think back to your question, specific collaboration between Indonesia and Australia might not be the case uh, in this issue. Myanmar, including dealing with Taiwan. Uh, Dealing with Taiwan also, I think it's, we need to be very, very careful. Uh, The fact we, I think we in the region see that China is still very much behaving rationally on this issue. So we just don't want to disturb the water, you know, you just need to be very careful on on this issue, uh, not to trigger any unnecessary moves. So establishing an institution might not be an option here but definitely ASEAN must be at the forefront and to, to make ASEAN to be at the forefront there must be a leadership in it. And then after that, we can think of the so-called ASEAN plus mechanism where external non-ASEAN countries can actually chip in or contribute into the effort. Otherwise, it will be very difficult, I think, uh, to, to, to move things forward especially in on, on Myanmar uh,
1: crisis. Well, we've just come through the worst health crisis for a hundred years. And as the pandemic demonstrated, non-traditional security issues can be no less dangerous and important than traditional ones. What's the future of cooperation on this front? And where should this suite of issues fit in the priorities of the CSP Lena?
0: Well, I think, this is exactly the area where Indonesia and Australia cooperation, bilateral relations, can be really built upon. We know Australia has been very active and generous to assist Indonesia in times of need. During the tsunami disaster, you know, um, Australia has been you know, very, very generous to land support, you know, provide funding, you know, helping with the with the SAR team, things like that. So uh, this is something that we really want. I think this is really something uh, that we really want to, to pursue further with countries like Australia, with so much capacities that you have to deal with. Yeah, even the haze problem, you know, I think this is time to time we, we face this problem and uh, the help from countries like Australia, I think is very, very meaningful. And learning from the pandemics, Definitely, there should be an increasing of cooperation between the two countries to conduct research, more research on how to build health resilience, regional health resilience. Um, The two is not a distant neighbor where we can, where where actually we share some of the health issue uh, to some extent. And mitigating the impacts of the climate change. Uh, You know, after the G20, I think a lot of takeaways there particularly for the Indonesian uh, constituents. And Australia has been very advanced at this uh, in terms of pursuing uh, net zero uh, carbon emission, you know. This is Indonesia just started to really see that this is very important, while Australia already has has a lot of initiatives on, on that. So I think cooperation between Indonesia and Australia on this issue is very, very important so um, higher cooperation in non-traditional security issues can really maintain the trust and healthy relations between the two countries despite of all the problems it occurs and quad i think if we have strong relations strong cooperation in these particular issues where people can really see you know the benefit of the stronger relations between indonesia and australia because these issues are very close people see it immediately so this certainly can help overcoming lack of persistent knowledge uh, and understanding of each other.
3: Uh, look, uh, from an Australian perspective, uh, you know, from where I, my time in Indonesia and visits there in recent years, I still think the areas uh, that uh, we should work extremely closely with Indonesia are the areas where we have Traditionally, had skills, and where our ability is respected as much as the ability of any country, and that is really coming down to it, I suppose. It's agriculture, it's uh, management of water, it's health and education more broadly, and to to some degree, mining technology. So you know, those are the areas where I think you know we have real respect. And those are the areas which we should project most. Then, of course, there are the new technologies where um, we're pretty good. We're not necessarily uh, the most advanced country in the world on some of these cybersecurity issues. AI, there are other countries that are probably ahead of us, but you know we have skills in those areas, and I, I think uh, uh, a science and technology agreement between Australia and Indonesia which was, you know, partly funded by Indonesia as well. I think that would uh, be a strong element in the relationship. Some areas of such cooperation, of course, are already covered, but a specific agreement, you know, a, a joint research fund where we put money into joint research in these areas where uh, we can help you and you can help us, I think that would be a strong element in building the relationship in in the dimensions that you spoke of
0: i agree with what john said definitely i think the the digital issue i forgot to, to put in i think this is something that we are looking forward um to uh, cooperate with uh, countries including with australia like yeah pursuing the digital economy issue this is something a, a big theme as well in indonesia especially after the g20
1: well, thanks very much to you both for that. I think we've ended on a um, on, on some good ideas with regard to where we can go to from here with the diplomatic relationship with Indonesia. Thank you. It was very nice talking to you again.
0: Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.